listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I invite you to stand for the reading of the scripture from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So I love before and after stories, before and after pictures, you know, you scroll on the internet, whatever, and you see before and then after. It's fairly self-explanatory, I know. We've purchased uh, two homes in the 11 years we've lived here in Indianapolis, and in both of them, after we moved in, we painted every surface we could. We replaced trim and fixtures and outlets and appliances. We knocked walls down. We moved things around. We did everything uh, because I I love just the idea of something before I got there and then what it became after. But Every single time we've started remodeling one of our rooms in our house, I've always made the exact same mistake. I've forgotten to take the before picture. You've done this. You get so excited about getting in there and like catalyzing some change that you forget to stop for a second and and take the picture. So I've had to, for the house we're in now, go back to the listing of, you know, when we bought the house and say, well, that's what it looked like before when it was decorated, like it was decorated in the 70s and never left. That's what it looked like before. And now here's what it looks like after. And every time we show people those pictures, you know what they say? Oh man, after looks so much better. Because it does, because my wife's really good at decorating and I'm good at knocking down walls. Uh, before and after, it's funny how it almost doesn't matter what the change is, but after always seems better. Now, we've got a before and after story happening here in these verses that we're reading, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, but it's not a, it's not a before and after in terms of a house remodel or restoring a vintage car or rebuilding some neglected ruin or something like that. It's much more personal. It's about rebuilding a family or restoring relationships, or in the case of this church, restoring unity. The before and afters of a remodel are great when it's a house, but it's even better when it's a church or a family or relationships. Because in Galatians, we've been reading a letter written to a church that desperately needs remodeling. 
not the knocking down walls kind, the, the restoration of hearts kind, and the restoration of unity. And the key to remodeling this church, restoring its unity, is in these seven verses, 23 through 29, because in these seven verses, there's a very clear before and after. There's a before, what the situation used to be, and there's an after, what the situation is now, and there's the catalyst, the outside element introduced into the situation that brings about change. There's a before and an after, and a catalyst we need to get to know. Because what Paul is saying to this church here is like, if you're going to be unified, if we're going to go from the before of disunity to the after of unity, you need to meet the catalyst. You need to meet the power that can actually bring unity out of disunity. And the same is true for us, wherever we are in our before and after story. If we feel trapped in the before and we just can't ever seem to change into the after that we want, it's not going to be, it's not going to come about by adding rules and regulations and restrictions. It's going to happen when you meet the catalyst who's introduced into the situation from the outside. So as we go through these seven verses in this big before and after picture, I'm going to take it in two main sections. You've probably already guessed what they are. It's an easy outline, before and after. Are you tracking with me? Great. Then we're going to start with before. Jump in verse 23. So, or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. And right away, I want to pause so that we notice the word we. That's important. If you've got a scripture journal, circle we, because Paul is describing the situation of Jews, of Jewish people under the law, under Torah, so that the Gentiles who are being tempted to put themselves under the law will realize that on the inside, it doesn't look as good as it does from the outside. Remember the overall context of the letter as a whole. Jewish Jesus believers are telling Gentile Jesus believers that in order to keep the unity in the church, to keep the the church together as one, and to ensure that the Gentile Jesus believers are in fact full members of the family of God, well, then they need to become Jewish. They need to submit to Torah, submit to the covenant regulations that governed the life of the people of Israel, especially the big ones. Keep the Sabbath, stay away from non-Jews, eat only kosher foods, and get circumcised. Paul's trying to convince both groups that their basis for unity is not outward conformity to a law or observance of Torah. In fact, uh, he argues that outward conformity is actually evidence that they're not unified, at least not unified around the gospel. The good news he keeps talking about of what the Messiah Jesus has done that has changed everything. So, uh, to convince the Gentiles that they they shouldn't be looking to the Torah to unify them, Paul explains the situation that Jews under Torah are in before Jesus came. That's verse 25. Before faith came, we, we Jews, were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So, what was the situation for Jews before? I'd say constrained and restrained. 
constrained and restrained, imprisoned, held captive under the law. And so Paul likens Torah to a, a restraint or a constraint on them. Uh, prison, by the way, is the literal translation of what's happening there, held captive and imprisoned. But we need to remember that in the Greco-Roman world, prison was not punishment per se. Prison was just a holding tank where you put people until you figured out what to do with them, how you were actually going to punish them. And the actual punishment was always worse than merely being confined. So prison here in this context is not you're being punished, it's you're being restrained. You're being constrained until the coming faith would be revealed. Torah had a regulatory effect that was temporary. It restrained the people for a certain period of time. So keep that in mind as we shift to verse 24, because in verse 24, Paul clarifies his point. We're not supposed to think of Torah as merely a holding pattern or a retreat from the world, but there's actually something protective about it. And he, he defines the role of Torah as a guardian. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Until Christ came, again, he emphasizes the temporary responsibility of Torah to act as a guardian. Now, the word, uh, the word that is here translated guardian, we're probably more familiar with the idea of a, a babysitter. That might, might be a better word for it. Um, in Paul's time, this was an actual position within a large family where usually a slave, a, a, a trusted employee or slave of the family, had the responsibility of escorting the children in the family to school and back to make sure they didn't get up to, into any, you know, nefarious business along the way. It's, it's why when we dismiss the kids to go down to second-hour catechism class, we escort them down there. Because who knows what your boys are going to get into if we just say, go for it, and please show up eventually at the right place. I could have used one of these guardians growing up because in the small town Iowa I grew up in, um, we were encouraged to, my parents were encouraged to let kids walk to school beginning in kindergarten, three quarters of a mile away. I know, right? And the way it would work is we would start walking, and if we didn't get there in time, the school secretary would call my mom and say, your boys aren't here yet. And she'd hop in the van and drive the route and pull us out of the snowbank that we were carving a fort out of or pull us out of the neighbor's yard where we were collecting acorns to sell to other neighbors or keep us from chasing cats and other stray animals. Um, but most of the time she didn't have to because the whole town acted as this guardian. When we were walking to school and we were lollygagging along, old man Van Weingarten would pull up next to us and roll down the window and yell, you better get, you're going to be late. And you don't want to make old man Van Weingarten angry because he'll tell his wife and she'll tell my mom. And then we'll all hear, wait till your father gets home. It, it just... So the guardian is there, has a role, not parent, not teacher, but escort, babysitter, uh, regulator, making sure that the, that the children in the family don't misbehave. Notice they're children. They're not yet sons. They're not yet fully grown adult sons who stand to inherit. That's important as we get to the next couple of verses. So where we are so far, though, Paul is telling the Gentiles, before the good news came, 
Before the good news about the Messiah came, we Jews were under a guardian, a babysitter, the Torah that constrained and restrained us. It kept us from going too far wrong until Messiah came. So that when Messiah did come, as he says at the end of verse 24, we might be justified by faith, marked off and recognized as part of the family of God by our response of trust in the faithful Messiah. This is temporary with a responsibility. And this verse perfectly sums up the before and after, along with the catalyst. Before, under a guardian. After, no longer under a guardian. What changed things? Faith came. Four times in just these three verses, faith shows up. Verse 23, now before faith came, at the end, until the coming faith, verse 4, uh, in order we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, now that faith has come. And that single word, faith, is compressing the whole of the good, the good news into one word. Before faith, before the good news came, before God came in human form in the Messiah and perfectly fulfilled in His life God's call on the nation of Israel to live faithfully and obediently before Him as a member of His family, before all of that, before the Messiah's faithful submission to death, the curse for the disobedience and unfaithfulness that Torah demands of all those who can't keep it perfectly, even though He kept it perfectly, faithfully, and obediently, before all of that, and before the Messiah was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all. Before all of that, before faith came, Paul says to the Gentiles, you see the situation we Jews were in. Before faith was a possibility, before faith in the Messiah was a possibility, here's the situation we lived under, imprisoned by Torah, awaiting punishment, under a babysitter, making sure we didn't get up to trouble. Children, not full-grown sons, not ready to inherit. The rhetorical force is overwhelming. He's saying to these Gentiles, do you really want to put yourselves in that situation? That's where we were. Why do you want to go there? Why do you want to go back to before when after has already come? So let's move from before to after. The after has been hinted at all the way through, but it begins in earnest in verse 26. I'll get a running start up to verse 26 by starting in verse 25. Okay. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And the before and after takes on a new dimension with this verse. Before, under a guardian. After, not just no longer under a guardian, but sons of God. What changed things? Again, faith. I mean, the whole of the good news about the Messiah, faith came. Back to that role of the guardian, you know, what I called the, the babysitter. Uh, older translations have used words like tutor to translate the word behind guardian here, and that's a, it's a bit misleading because this wasn't an education 
role. It was a restraint role. It was a guiding role. Well, it was a, I shouldn't say guiding because that sounds like teaching. It was an oversight role. Get them to school and back. But that, own, that role only applied as long as the children were children. Once they grew up into full adulthood, they could go on their own. The guardian was only needed until the children became sons, full adults ready to inherit. Now, we, we might more naturally translate that uh, sons of God as children of God because we want to clearly bring out the inclusive nature of the idea, but part of Paul's point here is, is that they would all, uh, male and female alike, share in the inheritance that would normally be restricted in that culture to just the sons in the family. But there's more to it than even that. When Paul uses the phrase sons of God or son of God, he is echoing uh, emotionally heavy Old Testament language. From way back in the beginning when, when God said to, when God told Pharaoh about Israel, he said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Or when God says to the king in Psalm 2, you are my son. Or to David's line of kings in 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. Or even more in Jesus' baptism. When God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. When Paul says, you are all sons of God, he's saying what, what God said about Israel and about the king and about the line of kings under David and about Jesus the Messiah himself, God now says about you, all of you who belong to Messiah's family. If you belong to Messiah's family, then what's true of Messiah is true of you. If he's the son of God, you are the son of God as well, the sons and the daughters of God. So Paul's point, again, if we are all, you know, each of us in the Messiah together by our faith in him, then we, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all sons of God, just as much as the Messiah is the son of God. We're all sons of God because we're all in the Messiah, and we're all sons of God through our faith in the Messiah. And if we're all sons of God in the household of God as part of the family of God, then don't you see you're all part of one family? Not two families, not multiple families, one family. And so he's making this point again to the Gentiles. You don't have to put yourselves under the law in order to be part of the family you already are. You are part of the family by faith. Faith that you expressed in your baptism. Faith that clothed you in Christ, as he says in verse 27. Paul is holding up these before and after pictures in order to remind Jews and Gentiles that they belong in the same family, in the same church, at the same table, because the same catalyst has brought about change in their status. The, the Messiah and the life of the Messiah has brought them together into one. And they've all come to the Messiah in the same way, by faith. And in this, this new type of gathering, 
this new type of community, this, this church, which, by the way, was a, a brand new invention at the time. You couldn't imagine before communities coming together that weren't defined by their ethnicity or weren't defined by their profession or weren't defined by their gender, to have actually an a egalitarian, equal gathering of people together unified around something other than all those differences this is a brand new radical way of thinking about community. And Paul is saying very clearly here, in this new type of gathering, this church, there's nothing you can bring to the table that gives you an advantage over anyone else. There's nothing you can bring that makes you more desirable or more included or more in or more welcomed than anyone else. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. In this gathering, you are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's almost as if Paul is shouting at them, don't you get it? In, in this, in the community of people who follow the Messiah Jesus, in the family of the Messiah, the old divisions we used to use to mark ourselves off as different, to form communities around, don't apply. There's no advantage to being a Jew or a Greek, a Jew or a Gentile. Even though, you know, we Jews used to think Jews were automatically the righteous ones and Gentiles were automatically the sinners. There's no advantage one over the other. Both come together in Messiah. And there's no advantage because of where you sit in the social pecking order. This isn't a community for the elite or for the oppressed. Both can come together in Messiah. And this whole time, he almost puts this in here ironically, this whole time as, as we've been arguing about whether or not uh, you Gentiles should get circumcised, that's an issue for the males. And it led to the temptation to think that males were automatically better situated to become or to be certain that they're part of God's family because God had given a command to just males involving a ritualistic marking of the body that set them apart as part of the family. It's almost like, well, the females in the world just had to sort of hope that they were in. There was nothing they could do on that level to be part of the family. And so Paul's like, look, being male or female doesn't give you an advantage in this family either. Because females and males both come into this family the exact same way, by faith, not by marking your bodies. Both can come together in the Messiah. So when it, when it comes to membership in Abraham's one worldwide family, none of these either-or categories matters. They don't get you anything. It's a radical new way of thinking about what it means to belong. All of us, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, we are all united into Abraham's one family by one qualification that has nothing to do with our gender or ethnicity or social status. We are one because we all equally share by faith in the Messiah's death and resurrection. That's the only thing 
that matters. In this family, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Which brings him to the culmination of the argument of the whole chapter. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to the Messiah, then you are part of Abraham's family line. You are Abraham's seed, his offspring, his family. You are part of Abraham. You are heirs according to promise. Do you really want to go back to before? Do you seriously want to go back to before when this is the after? You have to be crazy to want to put yourself back in prison under a babysitter when through the Messiah you're a son of God and inheritor of the promise. So what does that have to do with us? As we've said throughout this series, we're not Gentiles tempted to become Jewish in order to feel like we're true Christians, and most of us are not uh, Jewish who uh, were submitting to the Torah regulations before becoming Christians. So what, what do these seven verses have to teach us? Well, what I find fascinating about these verses and this chapter as a whole is that when Paul is calling for unity in the church, that's his big concern in these chapters, when he's calling for unity in the church, he never appeals to a law or a rule or a command mandating unity. He, never, he doesn't write them a letter just saying, I heard you're divided, get along. Instead, he he keeps digging deeper underneath the differences that separate them down to to where there's a rock-solid bottom-level truth that will bring them together. When I asked the other pastors for their thoughts on what uh, Paul might want us to learn from this part of the letter that we're studying this morning, Pastor Jeff sent me a great summary of how Paul calls the Galatians to live into this before and after story that he's telling them. Uh, Pastor Jeff said, Paul wants his readers and us to recognize that the distinction between what describes us and what defines us, he wants us to recognize a distinction between what describes us and what defines us. Jew or Greek may describe us. Slave or free may describe us. Male or female may describe us, but they don't define us. Whatever human categories describe us, we are defined by Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Pastor Jeff said, all human descriptions are subordinate to our primary definition as members of the body of Christ. That's the point Paul's trying to get across. Dig below the description to find the definition Find the bedrock layer of identity that you share in common in order to be united even in spite of or because of your differences. So if you're fighting about whether Jews or Greeks have more of a leg up, they have more of an advantage when it comes to getting to know God because you know, Jews were God's chosen people with special rules and regulations, well, neither is an advantage. Dig deeper below that description, down to the definition, you have both come to Messiah, come to God through the faith in the Messiah. That's it. There's no advantage one way or the other. 
Or if you're fighting about whether Jesus is only for the elite or only for the oppressed, dig deeper than both of those. The elite and the oppressed together come to God through faith in the Messiah in the same way. So dig below the description to the definition of being one in Christ. If you're fighting about whether men or women have easier access to God, since God gave specific rules for men that He didn't give for women, well, dig below the description to the definition. Men and women come to God through faith in the Messiah in the exact same way. Faith. So when Paul wants to catalyze unity in this church, when he's facing disunity and he wants to bring them together, what does he add to the two groups in order to make a before and after change? What does he add to them? New rules? New commands? New regulations? He adds the Messiah. He adds the Christ. He adds Jesus into their relationship and says, get below the differences and find what unites you, that you all, both, every one of you comes to faith in God through the Messiah in the same way. He's not adding a new Torah or a new command. He's adding a new life, a new power for living. When was the last time you heard a really compelling before and after story that looked like this? Well, before my life was like this, and after it was so much better, and the secret, the thing that changed everything, was a whole big list of rules. Actually, we see those all the time, but that's because people are trying to sell us the list of rules. I got a new planner last week, and on the back of the planner, uh, it had exactly this, this same thing in it. Oh, I wrote it down. Oh, here it is. It said on the back, people often marvel that I rarely work past 5.30, even while juggling responsibilities as a professor, author of multiple books, and parent to three boys. This system is my secret. I'm assuming it was written with that tone of voice. And for only $24.99 a quarter, you too can have access to the rules that are going to change your life for the better. Anybody tried those things? How long did it work? It's like Paul says, there was a commandment that held out life, but in my case, it only brought death (laughs) and more rules for me to not live up to. What actually moves you from the before to the after? What is it that changes your life and the parts of life you care most deeply about? Not your time managed, but, but your relationships with other people, the, the church and the communities you're part of, the contribution you make to the world. What actually moves you from the before to the after? Is it a list of rules? Set of new requirements? Externally... A, uh, imposed to shape your life in a specific way? No, it's, it's always a new life, a new power, a new force for living in your life. It's the life of the Messiah being lived through you. So if your family is breaking down because you can't find unity around the things you used to, and you're just counting down the days until after Thanksgiving 
what's going to bring you together? Is it sort of bottom-level niceness to each other? Maybe just, hey, let's not try to make each other angry? I'm not saying those rules, by the way, are bad. If that's the only thing that can unify your family and keep you from self-destructing, it's good. It's like a babysitter walking you to school. Go ahead and put that into to place. But if you and the other members of your family all claim the name of Christ and say you have come to the Messiah through faith, then there's something deeper than whatever you're going to argue about at Thanksgiving, something deeper than that that can draw you together. If everyone in that family is willing to dig underneath the differences and find the definition the rock-bottom layer of unity in Christ. If your relationships are breaking down, if your families are breaking down, if the church you're part of is breaking down, if anything in your life is breaking down in this way where you're, you're trying to set up differences to win or dunk on the other person, or you're trying to, to elevate yourself in order to get more power, you're trying to elevate this group, or you're trying to condemn that, whatever... The only way to come together around and among and in between all of those differences is to dig underneath those descriptions and find the definition of unity in Christ. It's not new commands and rules and regulations that are going to get you there. You have to put roots down deeper into the life that you have in Jesus, the life of the Messiah, and live that life in new ways, in new patterns, in new habits, in new rhythms. Is it, it doesn't matter who you are, what community you're part of, what church you go to, what you do for a job, what workplace community you're part of. All of us, all of our lives, all of our relationships all of our work in this world, all of our churches are all subject to this same before and after dynamic and need to meet the catalyst, the good news of the Messiah, if we're going to find real and lasting change. Because before, before the good news came, we were imprisoned whether as Jews imprisoned under Torah or as Gentiles imprisoned in our own ignorance of God, we were held captive and condemned. There was no way out for us. But now, after Messiah has come, we are invited into being the sons and daughters of God through faith in His Son, the Messiah, through Jesus. And if we're firstborn sons and daughters of God, then we stand to inherit the promise He made to Abraham way back in the beginning, that as, this, as God works to set this world right, we are the family that he does that work through. You were imprisoned. Now you're a child of God. Everything has changed. So let's pray. Father, everything has changed for us who have seen the faithfulness of your Son in living the calling that you had, had given to humanity in a way that humanity could not fulfill. We've seen the, the death of your Son in our place, the taking of the curse, the taking of, 
our debt, the taking of our punishment on himself so that we could have life and freedom in him and in our relationship with you. Father, I pray this morning for those uh, who are in this room or watching online who are imprisoned, who are imprisoned in their own ignorance of who you are, who do not know you and do not know the life that you offer to us through your Son. I pray that those doors would be thrown open, that light would shine in, and people uh, who do not know you would see clearly who you are, the God who loves them and created them, the God who sent his Son to die for them and for all of us. Father, I pray also for those of us who are set free from that prison and yet find that prison so much more comfortable than the freedom you've called us into. Whether we love the clarity of a list of rules that we can follow or we've abandoned the rules altogether in order to just experience and express whatever we can. Either way, we've imprisoned ourselves and found ourselves more comfortable there than in the freedom to which you call us. I pray that you would draw us out of our self-imposed prisons that we can live a life of godliness in freedom, in the freedom that you give us. Father, our hearts need to be reformed and remodeled and rebuilt once and for all and daily as we approach the day when, it, when we will become what you have called us to be. Draw us ever closer to that day and give us the life you have given, you have promised in Jesus. We pray this in the name of our Messiah who draws us all together into one. 